Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about managing risk. We're going to talk about what does risk even mean uh, and what are common risks that we see that people are mismanaging and what are the steps to take to properly manage risk. And don't worry, this is going to be you know more philosophical, not just a conversation about insurance. Um, Justin, it has been a while since you and I have riffed on a topic. I feel like between case studies you know, recording a bunch of episodes because I was out, out on paternity leave, just kind of front running that. I feel like it's been a long time since you and I have recorded together. It really has been. It's been a long time since we've taken a topic and just gone back and forth with it. Yeah, y'all had a baby and now we've had so many different things and different topics that we had to cover. It's good to be back. It is good to be back. And, uh, you know, I'm recording this at my house. So Ellis, our new, new son, may make a... Uh, may make a guest appearance. And, you know, it's we're recording this uh, early September, so we're still, we both have undefeated college football teams and we're overly optimistic about the season. So I feel like this is going to be a good good conversation. Oh, yeah. Okay, Justin, so let's start with, like, what is risk? Because risk, like, you get really meta with it. Um, but I love Carl Richards' definition of it's risk is what's left when you think you've thought of everything, right? I would, I, and I would also like kind of take that a step further of like risk is the low, pro- like black swans, right? It's the low probability, high impact events that you never see coming, right? Because like that's the thing is if if you knew if you knew the future, right? A pandemic is just like the quintessential example, but. You know, low probability, low visibility going into it, but a high, high impact. Um, Justin, how would you define risk? I think anything that threatens your financial well-being. Um, So I think I like what you were saying with kind of an an ultra big view of major, major risks that have low probability. But then I think it can also encapsulate very high probability events that will happen all the time that we expect to happen but we still need to plan around them because they do pose a threat to your financial well-being. Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, 2.0 is like, right, I think the financial planning version of kind of what we were talking about is anything that threatens your financial well-being. And so there are, you know, it's a risk a big risk is part about framing and what do you think the risks are? Right? You got to have a right view of okay, what do I think the actual threats are and then okay, how do I defend against those threats? But um there's there's a lot of different facets that that go into risk. And I think part of what this podcast will reveal is we think about risk differently. There's some systemic risks, i.e., uh, you know, a global pandemic or big change to le- legislation or, you know, the popping of asset prices due to securitized lending, uh, right? Like those have impacts to everyone. But I would also say to certain demographics, there are specific risks more so than others. And so what we can kind of talk about that as well, especially to kind of like our oil and gas retiree listeners, uh, what risks we see for them and how they need to plan for. So Justin, I think a good next play, a good next place to go. So now that we've talked about like for the scope of this conversation, financial planning concept. So managing risk is anything, anything that 
potentially impacts your well-being. How would like, what are like some of the things you're considering, some of the ingredients of risk, if you will, like what type of things threaten your financial well-being and, you know, how, how would you define risk and how would you measure somebody's ability to kind of understand and identify risk? I think uh, risk kind of changes over time. Um, you did a good job mapping this out. When we were planning this topic, uh, you pointed out that there's a difference between someone who is young, 32 years old, right? And have decades of earning uh, potential ahead of them. For them, human capital is their most valuable asset. The present value of their future earnings is the most valuable asset. Uh, and so the biggest risk is anything that would put their significant future earnings at risk, anything that could take away their significant future earnings. Um, and then over time, that kind of evolves as you get a little bit older. Uh, well, now you start to have assets, not just income potential. So you actually realize that income potential um, in your 30s, 40s, 50s you start to produce a, a much larger balance sheet as time goes on. And then risk becomes, okay, what could happen to my assets? Uh, so I built this ne nest egg. My, my balance sheet looks a little more robust than it did earlier in life. So the risk question is what could happen to these assets? Uh, and I love kind of thinking through what are wildly unexpected things that could pose an existential threat and what are standard normal things uh, that could pose an existential threat? So kind of black swan versus regular market risk, if you will. What do you think, Jared? Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think kind of like to put a bow on what you said, it's like, what what is my biggest asset, right? Or I guess what what asset loss would yield the most catastrophic results, right? And like like you're talking about, if you're, a, if you're an accumulator, like the case study example, like like a 50% drawdown or a lost decade in the stock market will not impact you, right? Because like you're not going to touch that money. Um, what would impact you much more significantly is a disability, right? Or is a life insurance event or a change to your employment that meaningfully impacts the future trajectory, right? Um, and so it's, and you know, retiree, what would dying prematurely do when you've, when you're financially independent? Probably not much to you. Or, you know, getting a disability when you're not producing, when the only income is passive through your retirement portfolio, you know, those, those risks are easy to manage. It's, so it's, you know, Hey, what is the, what is the maximum potential loss due to that? And kind of the thing that, that you optimize for. Um, I would also say, like, I think like a lot of times when advisors talk about risk, it's very one dimensional, like how much can you watch your stock portfolio go up or down? And then how, how aggressive should I be? But you know, how much should I be invested in stocks or bonds or various asset classes? Like how much volatility, if you will, right? Because uh, risk and return are tied. So generally, you know, if you take the right kinds of risk, you're hopefully compensated for it in an incremental return, right? So kind of helping people construct an investment portfolio. But I, I just think that's a really underwhelming and incomplete way to think about risk, Right. There's also like risk, I would I would say risk capacity. So risk tolerance is like, okay, how much stomach do you have for risk? And then risk capacity, i.e., how much risk do you need to take to achieve your goals? So like a great example of this is if you spend $100,000 a year and you have $10 million a year in a portfolio, 
you could invest 100% in stocks. But even if you invested 100% in you know, one-year treasury bills that are currently yielding around 5%, there's no way in heck you'd outlive your money. So what's, what's the incremental? And, and conversely, if you have a smaller bucket of money and you have a pretty substantial you know, future retirement outlay, you, you don't have the luxury of being able to invest conservatively. You, you, know, you need to take more risk. You need a higher return not to deplete your portfolio over time. So capacity also matters. And then I would also say, you know, wh- what is risk? It's understanding like time horizon, right? Like the pro- big problem with risk is not that you've, you know, it's, it's like temporary pr- price declines aren't a risk. It's, it's when there's a price decline and you don't have the time horizon to allow it to recover, right? And so, you know, a, a 30-year-old accumulator who's got decades more of investing versus a retiree that plans on using this money and drawing a substantial amount early in your first decade of retirement those portfolios, you know, their their risk composition or ability to take risk might be different just because they have different different time frames and risk exists differently on different time frames. There's a lot that I want to dive into that you just talked about. Um, I'm going to mention them so I don't forget them. So I do want to hit on what is a black swan event? And I I want to ask you, get your thoughts shared. Was 2008, the market crash, a black swan event? Because I've got some pretty strong opinions on that. But first, let's go back in order. So we mentioned two things that we should touch on. Risk tolerance, risk capacity. So first with risk tolerance, I mean, at first, Jared, I'd love to get your thoughts. Risk tolerance, when is it a good thing to have that topic cinched up and and dive into that topic as an investor? Yeah, I mean, it's helpful. I would say it's helpful information. It's just incomplete information right? Like the best portfolio is one that a client can stick with. So if you, somebody does not have the appetite, the stomach for, you know, 20, 30, 40%, you know, volatility in your portfolio, and they're going to sell it the first time that happens, you know, that's something that's really important to know. Or if somebody has a really aggressive investment tolerance and, you know, their returns are lagging uh, or their portfolio is too conservative for them. And, you know, they're willing to endure the ups and downs for the excess return. Right, that's another example of like risk tolerance really matters. Like it's a great starting point. So I, I, I don't think I think it it really matters, and it's a good first step. But but that's just is it to stop there? I think you're doing you, you're not fully understanding risk, and you're doing people a disservice because that's part of the equation. That's good. I would think about it this way. In for our listeners, in the most simple terms possible, risk tolerance can be an important idea because think about two different investors or two different portfolios, I should say. One is 100% stocks. The other portfolio is 50% stocks and 50% bonds or cash. Um, Now, those two portfolios, wildly different. You can make way more money in the long run, historically, if you're 100% stocks. You make less money, historically, if you're only 50% stocks and then 50% fixed income. But your, your path is so much smoother historically, typically 20, uh, 2022 removed, right? Um, so risk tolerance is critical because it's easy to look at the two portfolios that I just shared and look at historical returns and say, well, 100% stocks made more money, therefore we must always do that. But Jared, you hit the nail on the head. If you do not have the tolerance, if you cannot stomach, if, if you, if you in a literal sense, if you stay up at night worrying about your portfolio, 
better to be in a safer portfolio that you can stick to because you're going to make more money over a 20-year period in a less aggressive portfolio if, it, if you're willing to stick to it compared to selling out of a more aggressive portfolio. But Jared, I had so many, I mean, I, this was riddled in so many of our early articles and I think some of our early podcasts too. I hated risk tolerance surveys. I thought they were a stain on our industry. Um, and so the idea there is you work with any investment firm, step one of any investment firm, and, and we do this too, to be clear, but every firm gives you a risk tolerance survey. My beef with them is that they typically produced a risk number and that risk number would take you as a client and it would put you into a canned modeled portfolio. And normally it would skew a little bit less risky, less aggressive. And you're basically just put into this canned portfolio that you know the 10 million other customers of this giant firm are also in um, without a whole lot of thought given to well, risk tolerance should not be the most important consideration. Time, time frame should dictate the portfolio far, far more. Um, and so why are we letting the tail wag the dog? Um, and for someone, you know, let's say somebody goes to a giant wirehouse with $5 million to invest, they, they get a little bit lower score on a risk tolerance survey. Now they're in a canned 50-50 portfolio paying 45000 a year or 75000 a year for that portfolio. Um, and so I've had a lot of beef with risk tolerance surveys, but I think that's a good framework for some of the good and the bad with them. Yeah, I'd say a couple um, other shortcomings, before right? Kind of like a risk tolerance survey is theoretical in nature, right? Is it Mike Tyson who says everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face, right? Like, like my ability to say, like, it is one thing to be able to say, oh, yep. I'm fine with a 40% drawdown. The lived experience of that is drastically different, right? So like, it helps a little bit, but it's also theoretical in nature. And like, you're willing to, you know, you're you're appealing to your higher self, if you will, your higher, more rational self. But the person making decisions is going to be, you know, just a more scared, more fearful, more vulnerable version of yourself, right? When the market's down and there's infinite reasons to be bearish. So it's just, so that's also one of the things is just so theoretical in nature. That's what I'd add there. Um, but I had another thought and I'll, I'll mention it if I got, but go on to the next one. Okay. Risk capacity. So the next one, um, I think there's two components to risk capacity. One of them is, well, in a, in a theoretical sense, how much risk can your financial plan stomach? So you mentioned someone who has $10 million, but they only spend a hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, the, the capacity, if, if that person wanted to, they could theoretically take $5 million of their $10 million and put it all in one company. Um, that would be their, their financial plan, their long-term financial well-being uh, is really going to be fine either way. So they have an enormous capacity. Uh, but again, just like risk tolerance, risk capacity is not the only factor. It's not a dictator. Um, in their portfolio. So just because you can take on that much, much risk doesn't mean you necessarily do. And there's kind of a second side of that coin with risk capacity that is, well, how much risk do you need to take? Uh, if you're running kind of a pretty rigid financial plan, let's say you have $2 million and you're going to spend $80,000 a year, well, that's a little bit tighter. Um, and you may need to take a little more, you can't go too safe. 
but someone with 10 million who's spending 100,000, theoretically, if they wanted to go ultra safe, uh, I don't love the idea of going ultra safe. Inflation's going to erode purchase power, uh, but they theoretically could. So those are some thoughts on risk capacity. Jared, what else do you have? Just touching on one thing about risk tolerance, I just remembered what it was, is like, if you're getting thrown in a CAM portfolio, like your whole balance sheet needs to be considered. So like a lot of people will see somebody have a conservative number on the risk tolerance and say, hey, you need to go 100 zero stocks and bonds. But if you look under the hood, they have pension and social security creating 100% of your income. In that scenario, those essentially are bond-like instruments, right? So if you take the net present value of those future cash flows and and put a dollar amount to that, your actual portfolio is already substantially a ton of fixed income-like instruments, right? Where there's no price fluctuation. So, you know, like if if you are going to do the risk tolerance, like also understand that holistically and like make sure somebody's looking at your whole balance sheet to kind of to kind of have that conversation because it's easy to look, if you're looking at a slice of it say hey this slice exactly needs to match exactly what you scored on this without considering everything else going on in your financial life. Jared that's such a perfect point. We we have a client that's very much in this boat where their pension social security assets functionally provide everything that they would, you know, want to do in life on a monthly basis. And so we have to we have to think about that balance sheet completely differently. And so if someone has X amount of dollars and then they have social security pension, uh, just like you said, you've got to understand what's an approximate net present value for your social security, for your pension, and add that into the portfolio. Um, how many times have we seen a, a family where that's the situation, huge social security or pension assets and then they fill out a risk tolerance survey and, you know, giant company puts them into a 60-40 portfolio when in reality it's, hey, this is a 20% stock, 80% fixed income portfolio if you count those pension social security benefits properly. Yeah. And Justin, that's kind of like, I feel like that's a good segue into the kind of the last piece of this conversation, right? This is a podcast for, you know oil and gas professionals, retirees, employees, business owners. Like that's one of the first mi- you know mismanagements of risk we will we'll, I'll say. But like what what would you say are like the big types of risk that are the, the demographic we work with need to be aware of and or maybe like common risks or mistakes that we see related to thinking about risk. Yep. So I'm going to give a universal answer that's probably correct, whether you're in oil and gas or not. Um, So that first answer is it is a far bigger risk that you're going to face inflation and that over a long, long period of time, your money is going to be worth less. Uh, And so there's there's two types of risks. If we simplify retirement planning, there's market risk. The idea that, hey, the market could lose 40% next year. It could lose 50% next year. Market risk is real. It's there. Second type of risk is running out of money. It's inflation risk. Number two, that second risk that I just mentioned absolutely dwarfs market risk. We can, we can duration match your portfolio. We can use a well-planned out um, cash flow retirement income operation over the next 30 years to mitigate the risks associated with a market crash. We can do that. Uh, but a far, far bigger risk is, hey, you're running a tight financial plan and you're not exposed to assets that give you enough growth 
to beat inflation. So you might wake up in 20 years and, and not have enough money or run out of money. So that's the first universal risk I'd mention. Jared, to go a little bit more specific, especially with, with our demographic, you know, how many times do we see someone that's retiring from a super major and just because of their benefit structure, or if you're, you own part of a privately held company, you're oftentimes in a situation where can I retire isn't the right question to ask because the answer is an obvious yes. Uh, your example earlier, someone with 10 million who wants to spend 100,000, we'll run you a retirement scenario. We will. Uh, and I'm sure everybody will. But you don't need the answer to that question. Um, apart from some horrible mismanagement, you can do it. Uh, you're, you're in a good spot. So the risk that you should be focused on is suboptimal decisions. And so the, the risk is not, am I going to outlive my money? Uh, the risk is, am I going to overpay my taxes in my lifetime by $800,000 because I'm not meticulously planning the next 12 years, quarter by quarter? That's a, that's a suboptimal decision that poses a far more relevant risk uh, to your financial life than, am I going to outlive my money? Can I retire? Yeah. Like, to just kind of go back, yeah, temporary, like, the investment, like misunderstanding investment risk is huge. Cause like, like I would say the volatility of the stock market is part of why you get compensated, right? Like temp temporary price, price declines are like a feature, right? It's the, it's a feedback mechanism of just kind of moving, like moves up and down over time, but long-term you're investing in businesses and businesses grow and continue to innovate. Right. And so it's almost like people want to avoid market risk, despite knowing that there are going to be drawdowns and there have historically been drawdowns. And in spite of that, you will continue to succeed and your assets will continue to grow if you remain invested. But, you know, inflation just slowly just erodes it, erodes your wealth. And, you know, it feels safe not having temporary price declines, but long-term you like the preservation of purchasing power is, is key. But like, but Justin, you're right. Like I would say, like suboptimal decisions. Cause what you were talking about, like 800 K in tax difference. The problem is like, that's compounded, right? If you're leaving assets to people, um, like that 800,000 isn't just 800,000, even if that's the tax difference, you know, that's 800,000. That's not compounding. That's not being given to future generations. That's not being taken from the correct bucket. That's locating your assets inefficiently to where your inheritors are creating a tax time bomb that we've talked about in a prior episode. So, you know, but, but it's wild because, right? Like that is, that's really common and, or they're taking social security too early, right? Cause of, cause of risk and the, the fear of the government's not going to give me my money. Um, so we see that a lot and this risk is common because the stakes, like the, the consequences aren't super tangible, right? Like you will get away with inoptimal decision-making because you have done such a good job saving, right? Like you're like, no one's going to go hungry. Probabilistically, you know, you're going to be okay. Absent a, a wild decision, but these things are like, I would say questions you're not asking that can make a meaningful difference. So when we see people, it's not like, Hey, you're doing everything wrong. We're going to change everything. There's just probably four or five things they haven't thought about, or that we bring a different opinion to that, you know, just kind of just dial in and tighten the decision-making and those small things over decades make a really, really meaningful difference. But, but I would say the biggest risk is, you know, suboptimal decision-making, but also like 
not like not like not delegating to a professional, right? Because like you could really easily make a case of doing it yourself. And because you know you've set yourself up so well, you're going to be okay, but it'll just be an optimal. And and you know that cost doesn't impact you as much as it does heirs. So that's good. That's good. Should we? Uh, what do we think about goal misalignment? Yeah, I think this is like this is an interesting one because it gets back to like risk capacity, like i.e how much risk do I need to take? Um, and so, right, like this, and, and this kind of touches on risk, risk tolerance too, but like, I, I want the journey to, to be comfortable, right? Like what I, what I would say is a great example of this is, okay, like why is half of your portfolio in, in a single company stock if you need 3% investment returns? You know, like why, like, and maybe you're super bullish on this company. Maybe it's just a large embedded capital gain because it's your employer stock. Um, or maybe, you know, you p- you picked it and it's one of the FANG stocks and you've owned it for 20 years and it's done remarkably well. Um, I would say that's philosophically swinging for the fences and all you need to do is get on base, right? So the probability of you getting out when you're swinging for the fences is exponentially higher, right? So I, so I would say, hey, there's no reason to have such a high percentage of your comp- stock you know, in in a single stock or in your current employer, regardless of how you feel about them, right? And and you know, a lot of times the tax tail wags the dog. I.e., there's a capital gain I want to avoid, so I'm not going to manage it. But you know, if you have a substantial portion of your balance sheet tied to one company, we talk about it. Power laws: a, a few of the stocks drive a vast majority of the return, and a ton go out of business. Both of those things are true. So you're opening yourself up to a really asymmetric risk profile where, you know, the odds, the S and P goes out of business versus your individual company and your individual sector, or it even, it doesn't even have to go out of business. All it has to do is lose market share, right? And you can have a lost decade. So I would say goal misalignment of, Hey, really making tactical bets or actively managing the portfolio or really having concentration risk and, and being okay with it because, you know, because I, they have a backstop of having done a good job saving. Yeah, that's really good. I, uh, we took our kids to the Rangers Astros baseball game last week. And uh, the Rangers, if you're a baseball fan, the Rangers are in a absolute free fall. Um, and the Astros are surging. The Astros look like they're ready to um, win another championship, another World Series uh, title. But we go to this baseball game. Jose Altuve is up to bat, first inning. He And yeah, he's their leadoff hitter. So for first hitter, hitter of the game, Jose Altuve hits what looks like a ball that is going to hit the roof of the dome. So the, the, you know, it's a retractable roof in Arlington. Uh, it's 109 degrees outside. So the roof is closed. AC is on. It looks like Altuve is going to hit this roof and the ball still lands 10 rows into the left field. Just a monstrous home run. Um, second inning comes up. Jose Altuve is up to bat again. There's a runner on. Altuve hits another absolute moonshot to left center field, second home run. So we're two innings in. Jose Altuve's hit two home runs. Third inning comes. Jose Altuve's leading off the third inning. I mean, it's already a blowout by now. The Astros are up by like seven. Jose Altuve goes deep to center, third home run. And so by this point, uh, you know, my kids have just fully adopted the Rangers and they're not, you know, loving it. Like, obviously, we're going to lose this game. But at this point, we're just rooting to see Altuve hit as many home runs as possible because it's entertaining. And so Altuve hits another home run. We are in the third inning, and Altuve has three home runs. Fifth inning, Altuve gets his fourth at bat. 
What do you think his swings looked like? I feel like he, hopefully he was still sending it, right? Because, you know, it had served him so well up until that point. Oh, I mean, he was swinging so hard, he almost fell back into, into his own dugout. Um, and he, you know, like he almost fell down on, on strike one, swinging so hard. And unfortunately, he grounded to third, so it wasn't very exciting. Uh, but that's that's the perfect illustration here. It's, hey, if you are at a point where you've won the game, understand that the game is over and that you've won. And so don't do something completely insane to somehow take a game that is over, a game that you have won, and find a way to lose it. Um, now, in that example, I fully endorse Altuve going for a fourth home run because why not entertain us? The game is already over. Um, but if you've hit, you know, let's say you've hit $5 million or $10 million, be very mindful that you already have won the game. Your life's not going to get any better if you get to $40 million. And Jared, I'd actually phrase it slightly differently. If you have $10 million today, you're, you probably are going to get to $40 million if you just live for another 20, 30 years. Um, if you just compound your money at 7% a year, you're going to be there in a couple of decades. Don't be in a hurry to get there tomorrow. You've already won the game. One of the only ways that you could somehow rewind and lose the game is being obsessed with getting there tomorrow. Um, and so have the right goal alignment. Yeah. And these risks are really like, like this is a tail, th- this is what I would call a tail risk, like low probability, high catastrophe event. But like a lot of these like risks we're trying to avoid are like suboptimal, right? But really make a difference. Like the next risk is really, it's kind of a sister to this, right? I would call it like value misalignment, right? Like, i.e. like like how much work are you putting in for incremental return right we'll come across people that are still actively managing a stock portfolio or they're build, building a real estate empire that drives them absolutely bananas because they think they can get better investment returns or they can use the depreciation uh, increase after tax income like all of that is fine and good but like if you're spending time and energy to juice returns that you don't need i would say that is a poor use of your human capital um, and so, so it's kind of related to goals of like, Hey, like, don't, you know, don't, don't try to swing for the fences, but also like, don't, don't do work or investment work that, that isn't, that doesn't give you life and joy when you've already kind of won the game. So that's kind of a, a kind of a related one, but I would say value misalignment is a really suboptimal, you know, like it's, it's a risk that we see in portfolios that people haven't even thought about. That's a really good thought. Had a uh, text from a friend a couple weeks ago that was bringing up a uh, property. Um, and, and his question was, do you think you would be interested in flipping this property and buying this house, fixing it up and selling it? And, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot about how much we love real estate as an investment. Um, we just, man, we think real estate is an incredible investment. But if you've listened to a lot of our stuff, you also know that I've got a bunch of kids And I've also got a wife who's finishing up law school. Um, And I, you know, am pretty darn active in this business as well. And so the answer for us is an easy no. Um, And can we, can someone make a lot of money flipping that specific property? Yes. Emphatically, yes. And I'm pretty sure someone is going to do really well uh, doing that exact same thing. But it does not line up with our values and we would drive ourselves crazy 
uh, we're in, you know, we're in a chaotic stage of life. We don't need to, to play a different game that doesn't align um, with our current schedule and family. I would say you don't have the, the happiness volatility, right? The high of, of, of being a rental manager, right? The, the lows, the, you know, the fluctuations in income and getting a call from a tenant at 2 a.m. about a leak or something, right? It's just not, it's not, you know, compatible. You don't have the risk tolerance from a, from a life perspective, not from an investment perspective. That's well put. That's really well put. Um, we talked about this one a little bit, but just like, I would say people to also take like a short-term view, right? Of like, like seeing temporary price declines and then like the long-term erosion of assets. So like, like, like you will have, you know, $10 million and it's all really conservatively invested because they're scared of temporary price declines, but they pr- pretty much guaranteed that a, like that their portfolio is hopefully going to keep pace with inflation, best case scenario, or lose purchasing power, right? You won't run out of money, which is great, but like the lack of framing of, Hey, what does your balance sheet actually look like when you take in, you know, consider all your income sources with your pension and your social security, what does your actual portfolio look like? And people take too conservative of an approach because they're taking too short-term of a view, right? And not zooming out and thinking about, you know, how this impacts their, this, how this impacts their heirs. That's well put. I was trying to think, you know, I mentioned this earlier that I wanted to talk about this and I was thinking, where can I bring this up? And this is the perfect spot. So Jared, I want to get your, I want to just ask you, get your, I have no idea what you're going to answer. We haven't talked about this before. Uh, Jared, would you classify 2008, the market crash? Was that a black swan event? I would say, yeah. I mean, like, so the problem is, yeah, and we'll get into this, but I'll, I'll be curious to hear what you're thinking. Like, I, I just don't think, like, in hindsight, it was really clear the systemic risks that were in place. And, like, you can look and see the timeline, but, like, something 2008-like, uh, there was a lot of parties involved, and it was super obvious, and there was a big blow up. But but I don't think it was something on anybody's bingo cards 20 years prior, right? So, like, it's a great idea of, like, an event of, like, you know, some systemic exogenous shock that had cascading ripple effects. Um, and of course there was a super big blow up. There's a super catastrophic bursting of the bubble. And like some people were aware of it and saw it looming, but it was just one of those things where I don't think anyone saw it coming or understood fully the consequences it would have. I'm curious what you would say. Those are great thoughts. I've got two answers. Um, and it all depends on the lens that you're looking at 2008 through and who is the person that you're evaluating. Um, was this a, a black swan event or not? So if I am looking at a family who is living off of their assets and you know they've got X number of dollars invested and they're taking an income for the rest of their life, so kind of a classic retirement planning scenario, I would emphatically argue that that is not a black swan event. Um, and I remember several years back had a discussion in kind of a round table with 15 or 20 other CFPs. Um, and I was taking this stance pretty hard. Like guys, this is not a black swan event. This is a market crash. We've had 12 of these since world war two. Uh, we've had one about every five, six, seven years. Um, not only has it happened, you know, X number of times since world war two, we expect that it's going to happen another four times in the next 20 years. Um, fully expect that this is going to happen. So this isn't wildly unexpected. Uh, this is, you know, relatively 
not par for the course because it's certainly up there with the worst market crashes of all time, uh, but it's not, this was not catastrophic loss. This was not a 70, 80% loss. A diversified portfolio drew down 40%. And if you did a good job duration matching your portfolio and mapped out your next few years of cash flow, you should have been able to make it through that with proper financial planning. Um, so in that regard, well, it's not really a black swan event. It's it's a market crash. And a bad market crash is probably going to happen every five, six years. But Jared, if you're a real estate developer, that's a black swan event. I like that. So the answer is yes and no. Because like from a you know distribution of returns perspective, we anticipate something like that. Don't know what it'll be. Black Swan events will happen in various sectors of the economy and therefore spill over to the stock market. But we don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know to what severity. So I like that. Justin, let's wrap it up with this last point of like the risk of holding on too tight. And this is kind of connected to a short-term view, right? But like I would call this like, so let's use the $10 million person, for example. They're like, they're not gifting assets because they're not, they don't feel comfortable that they're not going to outlive their money. Right, and in my mind, the odds that they have an estate tax are uh, substantially higher than them outliving, depleting their portfolio. Right, so you know, really holding on too tight and saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm afraid of spending this down. I haven't done the math. I don't have a distribution plan. I don't know what I can safely spend. So I'm just going to hold on to it and not gift it, uh, despite creating, you know, a risk of an estate tax way down the road. And then, you know, kind of like ancillary and connected to that is like not spending even when you have the wherewithal, right? Like one of the things that we have to do with our clients, like the risk of like underutilizing your money, right? Because like money is a tool to help you live a really good life. And if you have the wherewithal to spend money on things that get you excited, you should emphatically do that. And too often in our work, you know, for episodes, we've talked about in prior episodes, people have difficulty spending money, abandoning, changing, you know, living off a portfolio, changing, kind of abandoning the behavior that served them so well once they've won the game. But the risk of just underutilizing your money, right? And like giving it all away when you're dead is not nearly as fun as getting to spend it in meaningful ways, creating meaningful experiences for yourself and others along the way. So holding on too tight and really just, you know, under underutilizing it are also two big risks that we see and that are super common. I think that's really good. Yeah, I think mapping out what is the bigger threat to your financial situation. Jared, that was actually the, the first question you mentioned at the podcast. What is the biggest threat in my financial life? And then how do we plan around those? Um, and I think that's a really good good place to put it. Yeah, and you know, very privileged to be in a place to say, hey, the, my, my biggest threat isn't depleting my portfolio, but it is suboptimally mismanaging it or overpaying or, you know, not taking advantage of legacy or underutilizing it, if you will, but, you know, or having a tail risk because you're taking too much risk that you don't need to. But we hope this conversation has been helpful and would love to hear what do you think risk is? What, do you, what are the biggest risks that you're trying to manage in your retirement? Uh, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.